I think every mom's worst nightmare is the unthinkable accident that could happen to your child. Micah was a healthy, normal, and active 13-month-old. One day he and I were playing on my bed, and in a short instant, Micah maneuvered himself up against a window screen, and he fell two stories, hitting his head on the wooden deck. I just couldn't reach him to stop it. He lost everything. He couldn't move, he was quadriplegic, he was blind, seizure disorder. Everything that he ate had to be done through a hole in his stomach through a G-tube. Micah is four now, and the doctor's list, it looks like he doesn't improve. Every day we have a, a nurse that comes to our home about six in the morning and gets him up for his routine in the morning, including a gamete of medications. He gets some therapy to help him with coughing because he can't even do that on his own. But on a bad night, um, he's up all night and he is also vomiting or having a seizure or I'm calling the paramedics and running off to the emergency room at two in the morning and waking up my two-year-old to come with me for that. And being a single mom, it's, I'm exhausted. <laughs> it's really tiring. I have bad days and I have bad moments and I have days I'm in the car and I'm just crying. God, I can't do this again today. <laughs> I just have no, I have nothing in me. But God gives me stamina to keep going. When I feel so alone, I, I always play Chris Tomlin's, if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? I believe and I pray and trust that God is in control. Right now, it's about choosing to worship all the time, even when I don't feel like it. But I know that my circumstances in this situation doesn't change that God is still God. He's still on the throne, still bigger than everything I'm facing. I just know God has a plan for Micah. It's no. It's not random that God spared Micah's life. And I feel so blessed that God has assigned me to be a part of that. I lived in an illusion that I was the caretaker of my children, that I was responsible for the outcomes. I'm learning that my role is just to join God in the work that He is doing in my kids. And in everything and in every situation, point them to Him. I'm humbled to be part of such a huge undertaking, but it's God's work and not mine. We live in a world of should-nevers. My son was one when he fell out of a second-story window and he lost function of his body. It should never have happened. A hard-working employee should never be wrongfully terminated. A parent should never have to work two jobs and still live paycheck to paycheck. A child should never feel unsafe in their home. 
a diagnosis, a disability that should never happen. We live in a world of should nevers. And God, if you are so powerful and you love us the way you say you love us, then why do you continue to let these things happen? Because I had a plan for my life. And what I thought should happen, didn't. And what I thought should never happen, happened. Do you ask these questions? I ask these questions. And I think they're very valid questions. Because if there isn't a good enough answer, then why are we even going to trust him? Why would we trust God? Why would we want other people to trust God? I wrestled with this question when I saw my son plummet two stories and lose everything he had going for him. I wrestled with this question when my 10-year devotion to an abusive spouse ended and it landed me in a mental hospital because I didn't want to live not in a world where the pain is this unbearable. And why doesn't he stop even basic things like child abuse or cancer? I understand sometimes adults who have made poor choices, sure, they can suffer the consequences, but what about somebody who's innocent or like a child? Where is God in that? In the same way I ask these questions, I know some of you do too. I just want to honor and appreciate the many miles your feet have run. And some of you have had to hike over mountains. And some of you today are sitting in your seats, bewildered at a mountain in front of you. I want you to know that you are not alone, even on your loneliest days, and your pain matters. And today, I hope that I can offer you a different perspective about pain and suffering that might encourage you to go just another day or another week or month or season so you get to the finish line. Not just to finish, but to finish well, to have a flourishing finish. So today, we're going to open up God's word. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app, feel free to open it up. We're going to go to 1 Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 1. And we're going to look at a woman who has wept like we have wept for a pain that she could not control. I'm going to read through it and I'm going to butcher a bunch of names and cities and towns. So just go with me on that. <laughs> There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf of Ephraim. And Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priest of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, 
he would give portions of the meat to Penina and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would only give her choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. That's actually a good thing. Choice portion means he gave her the best. He gave her the best part of the food because he felt sorry for her. So Penina would taunt Hannah. I've got some jealousy going on. She would taunt her as they went up to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. So she's got the best food in front of her and she can't even eat it. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place besides the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord, and she made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you would look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. As a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, seeing her lips move but hearing no sound. He thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded? Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I have not been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am really discouraged. I was pouring my heart out to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed, and then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea, and in due time she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. So this is a story about a woman named Hannah, and she's married with no children. And Hannah came from a culture where her significance and value was placed on her ability to marriage and uh, get married and have children. So even when Hannah was little, she always kind of had it in her head, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have kids. And so she has these expectations of how her life is supposed to go. And that's where her pain starts, is she's got these unmet expectations and isn't that where our pain starts? We have this idea of how things are supposed to go. And when those expectations go unmet, there's pain. And Hannah is so grieved. She's downhearted and she's discouraged. And pain can really interrupt our life and stall our life. And Hannah could not even eat. And not only could she not get pregnant, but she was also being bullied her feelings of feeling valued and significance was being questioned. And don't we feel that way too when we're going through something hard, when we're in pain, is that we start questioning our feeling of value and significance. And how does Hannah's husband comfort her? Well, he gives her really good food. He's such a guy. Like, this will cheer her up. <laughs> God bless him, he tried. And then he says, well, at least you have me. Aren't I better than 10 children? I mean, he, God bless him, he was trying. 
But don't we say things like that too when we try to comfort each other? At least. We try to redirect other people when they're in pain. At least you have. You had a miscarriage. At least you can try again. You lost your job. Well, at least you can get unemployment. We need to do better than that. We need to listen to each, listen to, uh, each other instead of redirecting. I get that too. You know, my son is significantly handicapped. Oh, well, but at least he's alive. How does that help me feel better? It doesn't. <laughs> Anyways, back to the story. So Hannah, one year, her family goes up to the temple like they normally do to worship. And on one of the days that she's there, she decides that she is so brokenhearted, so distraught, that she needs to go and talk to God herself. So she goes in the temple by herself. And she pours her heart out to him, so much so that Eli thinks that she's drunk because she's so out of control. Um, but then she tells him what's really going on, and then he blesses her, and she feels better, and then she's able to eat and not be as sad. And then later, Hannah goes home, and after she goes home, she gets pregnant. She gets pregnant with Samuel. And when Samuel is born and he's a little bit older, Hannah sends him to the temple to be raised, and she's dedicated him back to God. And so God had compassion on Hannah's pain, just like God has compassion on you when you're in pain, when you're going through something hard. And there are three things that God really wants you to know. Number one is that he sees you. He sees you. He sees your tears. Your pain matters to him. This beautiful verse in Psalms, Psalm 56, 8, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. This means you're remembered. If he's keeping track of every tear, I don't keep track, but he does. He, you are remembered. Number two, he wants you to know that he will redeem you. Your situation matters to him. What you're going through matters to him. Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Binds up the wound. That's an answer. That's a solution. He will redeem you. There is a solution. He will take care of you in your pain. He will fight for you. And number three, he wants you to know that he did not author your pain if it was a result of someone else's free will choice to sin. Okay? There is free will. God has given us free will to make choices, and that means other people make choices, good choices and bad choices. And unfortunately, there are a lot of bad choices that people make. God's not owning that. I think a lot of times we say, God's in control. Don't worry. Well, God's not controlling someone else's free will because if he did that, they didn't really have free will. I think what we really need to say is, instead of saying God is in control, is say God is in charge. He's in charge of those decisions. Because if someone comes up to you and, and says that they went through some significant child abuse, you're going to say God controlled that? God did that? He did not do that. But he's in charge of it. He will, he's one responsible for it. He's responsible for the justice. James 1, 13 through 15 says, And remember, when you are tempted... 
do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed, it grows and gives birth to, and it gives birth to death. See, a broken world makes broken decisions. And when sin entered the world, so did suffering. And the earth is falling apart. Our bodies are falling apart. Our relationships are falling apart. God is not in control, but he is in charge. And Hannah knew that God is in charge. And she knew that so much that she knew, he's the one I got to go to with my pain. No one else can help me. And so she approaches the throne, the temple, and she, she pours her heart out. Now when she prays, she doesn't pray the nice, normal Christian prayer. Dear Father who is in heaven, if you would grant me this request to have a child, I would be ever so grateful. I trust in your provision. In Jesus' name, amen. She doesn't do that. It's not honest. She was honest. She was a hot mess. She comes in, and she's weeping and wailing, and she's a, such a hot mess that Eli thinks that she's drunk. That's a pretty big hot mess. But it was honest with what she was feeling, and she told God what she was wanting. She pleaded with him and bargained with him. She weeps. And you know, this honesty in front of God is a real act of submission to God. She went to him because she knew that God was the only one who could change her circumstance the only one that could change her perspective. And she knew that he would hear her. That's submission. She, she poured her heart out and she told him what she wanted. And Hannah also shares her pain with another person. She tells Eli how brokenhearted she is. And I love Eli's response to her. He doesn't try to redirect her, make her feel grateful for what she does have. At least you're married. He blesses her. He validates her pain. He agrees with her plea. She says, all I want is a child. And he says, I, I, then God bless you. I hope you get a child. Yes, I agree. And that's what we need from each other. That's community. We need to be vulnerable with each other, and we also need to let other people be vulnerable with us and know how to respond back, and validate, and pray with, hope with. What's so cool about this story that when I first read this, something that didn't make sense to me, and, and I don't know if it makes sense to you or not, but like, all Hannah wants is a child. She's distraught, she can't eat, all she wants is a child. And then she goes in the temple and she prays. And then while the prayer is going and she's pouring her heart out to God, she gets this idea that if God decides to give her a child, that she would go ahead and give the child back to him. And I'm like, wait, hold on, rewind. You want a child, but if you get one, you're going to move him on. How do you go from being so desperate to have a child to be so willing to dedicate him back to the Lord? How does that happen? It's like she had this paradigm shift in her head while she was praying. 
And see, what happens is when we go to God and pour our heart out to him, he gets to change our perspective. She had a a perspective change. She surrendered to God by going to him, and then he changes her perspective. She pleaded with God with what she wanted. She told God what she wanted, but she believed that he would give her what she needed. And she believed that God was the only one who could change her situation. She knew God was in charge, and she submitted to an authority that was completely trustworthy. And then Hannah gets her peace back after the paradigm shift. After she talked with Eli and she left the temple, she was no longer sad, it says. Hold on. There's no solution yet. Samuel hasn't been born yet. She was able to eat, and she, and, and she was no longer sad. When did that happen? Was it before Samuel, or was it after Samuel? It was before. How? Why? Because it's not the things or even the circumstance change that we really long for. Things and circumstances do not bring us joy. We think they do, but they don't. Here's how you test that theory. The thing that you really want right now, look at somebody who has it. Are they full of joy? I really long for my son to be healthy. I know plenty of moms who have healthy children, and they're not full of joy. Look at our celebrities. They have everything they need. Are they happy? Wealthy people, are they all happy? Hannah could look at Penina. Her, Penina had children. She had what Hannah wanted. Was Penina happy? Yeah, so happy that she thought with all of her bubbling joy, she should just go ahead and just make fun of Hannah and taunt her because there's nothing else that you do with happiness. Our source of joy does not come from circumstances. One does not equal the other. Nor does a situation without an answer equal misery. Hannah was no longer sad after she poured her heart out to God, even though there was no change in her circumstance yet. She didn't know how God was going to answer her. You can have peace even in the middle of pain if you submit to God's authority, which is completely trustworthy. Hannah had her peace in the middle of pain before God gave her the desires of her heart. How? It's a perspective change. God has a perspective that we just don't have. And we feel that pain deeper because our perspective only sees what's right in front of us. And God's ways are often opposite of ours because he sees things that we don't. And so we have to go to him so he gives us that perspective. We only see what's right in front of us, but he sees beyond that. Some of you might have seen this rope analogy before, but I think it's so wonderful. I'm going to use it. So imagine this rope is a timeline of your life. 
okay? Now, you were born, so you have a beginning. But you really have no end. You don't. So I know the rope ends right there in the middle of the floor, but let's just imagine for a moment that that rope continues out into the lobby and um, has no end. So it's going to go out into the parking lot, and it's going to keep going down Route 31. has no end. And it's going to keep on going through the state of Illinois to the edge of our country and then wraps around the earth again and again and again and again and again. That is your timeline of your life. And let's imagine for a moment that your life here on earth is right here in this blue tape, okay? You're born and then you die and then you spend eternity somewhere else, hopefully heaven. And we are so focused, our perspective is so limited to just this blue tape. We're born, we get goals, we have plans, we work, 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 and then we, we save, 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 kind of, and, and then and we, so that we can retire and enjoy our life right here. We are so foolish. Our perspective is so limited. See, God cares about the pain that you're experiencing in here. But he really cares about what's coming after and the legacy that's coming after you. His perspective is looking at the rest of the rope. God is planning your legacy. And sometimes the greatest blessings come out of our deepest pain. And God doesn't cause the pain, but he uses the pain. And God cared about Hannah's pain, but he cared more about her legacy. Hannah was in the middle of her fertility, and she was being bullied, and she felt like a nobody, and she felt she was missing out. She was disgraced. She felt cursed. Her feelings were the opposite of what was actually true. She was not missing out. She was blessed. She gave birth to Samuel, and because of her paradigm shift, she was able to dedicate Samuel back to the Lord. And do you think, I wonder, if Hannah's decision to submit to an authority that was completely trustworthy had any sort of influence on her son Samuel, who was able to submit to an authority that was completely trustworthy? It's the next generation, and it doesn't stop there. Samuel became a prophet, a judge, a leader for God's people. He was the guy that was responsible for anointing David to be king. David, who's in the lineage of Jesus' coming. Hannah wasn't a nobody. She was part of all that. That was her legacy. And in the middle of her pain, God saw all of that coming. Hannah didn't. And God cared about her pain in the middle of it, but he cared more about the legacy, and so he let it happen. You don't realize how your submission to an authority that is completely trustworthy today will affect generations to come, even if you don't have children. Because you affect the people that are around you, 
and around them and around them and so forth and so forth. It is a domino effect and you have no idea the legacy that God has planned for you. And God cares deeply about the pain that you're going through. He does. He is compassionate. He collects your tears. But he cares more about your legacy. And so he's willing to let you go through a little short period of time of pain. It's short. Because he knows that the payoff is so much bigger. And he wants that for you. And he has that for you. He's planned that for you. God's celebrities are not who you think they should be. In Hannah's day, Hannah was a nobody. But she's one of God's celebrities. We are still talking about her today. Two books in the Bible are named after her son. So if you bring God into your hardship, he will make it so beautiful. And comfort comes when we submit to an authority that is completely trustworthy. You all got a piece of glass when you came in through the doors. And our pain and our hardship can feel pretty useless, like a broken piece of glass. Like if you went, if you were at home and you saw that on your kitchen floor, you would pick it up and throw it away. This is no good. Get rid of it. Trash. But God's perspective is different. He sees things differently. We're still stuck on that blue tape. God's perspective goes on and on, and he cares about your legacy. We know that all good things come from God. That's from James 1.17. All good things come from above. But the other things that are not good, that don't feel good, the painful things, God promises to coordinate them into good Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He turns the bad things into good. So the good things are good. The bad things get turned into good. It's all good. Don't you know who you are? You are not cursed. You are blessed. There is no fear of the future. The very things that the world says are the broken parts of your life are the very things God will use to make a masterpiece out of your life. Like a stained glass window is made up of broken pieces. And you are going to find out that you've been making a stained glass window all along your whole life. It's your legacy. So what do we do with this pain? Because right now we're just holding this piece of glass. You're going to trust that God has this, a part of your story matters. We're going to go to God just like Hannah did and pour our heart out to him honestly. We're going to plead with him and we're going to ask God for the impossible. I will never stop praying for my son's healing. My son had his accident nine years ago, and I am still praying and fasting and asking God and crying out and pouring my heart out to him. Heal him, because we believe in a powerful God. We believe in a God that can raise Lazarus from the dead three days later. He is not late. He is always on time. But I know that when I pour my heart out to God, 
submitting to an authority that is completely trustworthy, he can do a paradigm shift in my thinking. And I'm going to pray for the impossible, but I'm going to trust he's going to give me exactly what I need because he cares about my legacy and he cares about your legacy. We're going to play a video right now that beautifully explains what it means to trust God. And then afterwards, we're going to, the worship team is going to sing a song over you. I want you just to hang on to your glass and whatever is in your life right now that feels broken and useless, I want you to have a conversation with God. Trusting God is a decision. It's not a feeling. So if you decide you're going to trust God with it and pour out your heart to him honestly, God will give you a perspective change, a paradigm shift. Sometimes we view trusting God like obeying an authoritarian boss. Start walking. Okay. We see God as someone hovering way over us, barking out random orders. Do this hard thing. Okay. We obey without knowing how obedience affects us and others around us. Do this next hard thing. Okay? As a result, our commitment to obeying God and trusting Him in hard circumstances can feel very scary, especially when the outcome is unpredictable. Now jump! Seriously? Yep. Uh, like right now? Yep. I feel like you will be farther away from me if I take another step. I feel like I might fall. Trusting a God who feels far away and uninvolved would be scary. But the truth is, God is not uninvolved, looking down and simply barking out orders at us. God is closer than we think. And trusting God is more like trusting the perfect dance partner. He sees you and adores you. He takes the first step. And when you follow his lead, your feet move in sync. He dances with you. And even in a scary step, he knows the next move to make. To make your life's dance the most beautiful it can be.
How did I cross over that cliff? We danced, and I led. be my first response when doubt and fear consume my heart to fall into the sovereign arms and trust your steady hands when all around my soul you are my hope and stay you never leave you never change your steadfast is the pain I believe you are good you deserve Oh, 